Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's good to be back on the air again as always, and hard to believe today is the first day of April. You know, the last time I was on the air with you all, we had discussed um, progress that the uh, Lighthouse Board itself um, established in the wake of um, Stephen Pleasanton's um, resignation after uh, being at the helm for 32 years, from 1820 to 1852. This uh, new Lighthouse Board has obviously done a lot of um, phenomenal things in terms of um, actually being a a competent uh, agency for uh, being able to uh, implement uh, measures that are uh, sound, relevant, and um, operational to where lighthouses themselves are gaining more respect, especially with having those uh, Fresnel lenses. But once again, we're going to be discussing a period of uh, history that uh, really is a very dark uh, chapter um, in America's um, existence. It has nothing to do with um, the uh, reign of um, incompetent um, figures like Stephen Pleasanton was with um, lighthouse management being superintendent of uh, lighthouses and yet he had no uh, knowledge of lighthouses in general. But how about uh, war? Or I should say a civil war. The war between the states This is what we're going to be discussing uh, in this podcast, Uh, not just, yes, about the Civil War, but also um, the start of uh, transitioning back to um, the United States as people knew before the Civil War. However, the Civil War itself has been coming for a long time, and in the eyes of some, it was just a matter of when or let alone in the eyes of many. So our uh, first uh, podcast, uh, for this first question, rather for this uh, podcast episode, is going to be the following. What happened on November 6th of 1860? Well, you know, when I think of um, congressional elections, or how about a presidential election, if I'm not mistaken, election day in the United States is the first Tuesday after the first uh, Monday. So on November 6th of 1860, Abraham Lincoln won the presidential election. He would become our nation's 16th president. And you know, it's always easy to assume that uh, when one wins the presidency, that the transition of power will be a smooth one. Well, for the most part, we would always like to believe that any transition of power goes well, but how about, but when it comes to um, the um, well-being of our nation, and in this case, how um, tense the relations are between North and South, that's a whole other story right there. The relations between North and South have been uh, brewing for all the wrong reasons for quite some time. You know, think about it. Um, You know, for every free state you add to the Union, you have to add a slave state. And, you know, while, yes, all those compromises were great in preventing a civil war from breaking out any earlier, that still didn't mean that a civil war was inevitable. How about politicians... Um, being um, partisan. Of course, partisanship is nothing new, but in in the years leading up to the Civil War, towards the, especially around the 1850s, it really became even worse. A good example happened, I believe, in 1856 it was, when uh, Preston Brooks, a congressman from South Carolina, got so enraged by what Charles Sumter of Massachusetts, or Charles Sumner of Massachusetts, who was a U.S. senator, had uh, said in his opposition towards the institution of slavery that Preston Brooks himself stormed into the Senate chamber with a cane and literally knocked Charles Sumner to the ground, beating him to a pulp. It's a miracle that Charles Sumner survived, But it just goes to show you, folks, just how nasty and brutal 
politicians were to one another. On the other hand, even in the early years of our republic's existence, politicians were not kind to one another. Federalists and anti-federalists had it out for one another. In some cases, it led to dueling, most notably the famous one between Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton that occurred on um, in the area known as uh, Weehawken, New Jersey, that resulted in Burr killing Hamilton. So given how tense the relations had become between northern and southern states regarding the slavery issue, which state down south became the first to secede from the Union? The answer is the following. It is, um, well, rather than just say the answer right away, I'll give you all a couple of choices. Is, op is it option one being North Carolina, option two, Georgia, option three, South Carolina? The answer is the following. South Carolina, option three. South Carolina was the first state to secede from the Union, or let alone Southern state, which it did so on December 20th of 1860, just six weeks after Abraham Lincoln won the presidential election. South Carolina's secession from the Union, it, it was bad enough that South Carolina chose to secede from the Union, but what else did it spark? Well, it sparked a lot of things, but if I could pick one in particular, how about South Carolina's secession from the Union sparked debate over whom had control of federal property? Well, even federal property itself is vague, but when I think of federal property and based off of what we've been discussing, how about lighthouses? After all, lighthouses have been a property of the federal government since 1789, which was the same year that George Washington became president. After all, Congress, um, led by Elbridge Gerry, who of all people, yes, was an anti-federalist, and yes, as we all know, Mr. Gerry is the one that we have to thank for gerrymandering. After all, gerrymandering was named in his um, honor as he was the first to carve out political districts that favored his party over the opposition and left uh, those whom he did not uh, want to represent or have represented in his uh, districts um, left out to um, rot. But it was Elbridge Gerry who introduced the Lighthouse Bill that Washington himself signed, being the Lighthouse Act. So after all, you know, who would have thought that 60-some years later that the federal government's um, possessions of lighthouses, most notably in one particular region of the country, would come under control? would come under uh, scrutiny. Now, I don't expect you all to remember, to remember this person's name, but after all, it is worth sharing. The name T.T. Hunter, he was the lighthouse inspector in charge at the Charleston, in charge at Charleston, South Carolina. At the time, South Carolina seceded. So in other words, you know, um, each district, um, Atlantic, Pacific, uh, Great Lakes, and the Gulf, each region, you know, is an, assigned a naval inspector as well as an army engineer. So Mr. Hunter is basically um, more than likely a, either a naval inspector or an army engineer, but I'm going to assume naval inspector. But he's in charge of the lighthouses at Charleston. And then you have a guy named uh, Raphael Sims who is a U.S. Naval commander. And we're going to mention him uh, a great deal more after this part here, but I can tell you this much. Raphael Sims is the one who uh, advises Mr. Hunter to turn over all lighthouses to the state, being South Carolina. How so? Why would Mr. Sims want to do this? Is Mr. Sims hiding what we might think um, think um, improper loyalty. You know, after all, if Mr. Sims is working for the government like Mr. Hunter, shouldn't they be loyal to the government? Or anybody who works for the U.S. government be loyal? Yes. But during the time that the Civil War is going to break out, loyalties are going to change. And some... And, and we know that um, many families are obviously going to be torn apart by this war. Abraham Lincoln's wife will be, after all. She has, you know, she's from Kentucky, and uh, she has brothers who are fighting not only on the Union side, but brothers on the Confederate side. 
you talk about a, a, a terrible rift where it could lead to, you know, some members of her family not wanting to speak to her and the same for anyone else who's caught in a um, bad um, rift. So Mr. Semmes' decision is based upon personal loyalties tied to the South. So there's your uh, answer right there. Now, besides being a U.S. Naval commander, what else is there to know about Mr. Semmes? Well, he was born in 1809 in Charles County, Maryland, along the banks of the Potomac River. How ironic that in 1809, that was the same year that Abraham Lincoln himself was born. It was also the same year that Thomas Jefferson's uh, presidency came to an end and uh, James Madison succeeded him. Mr. Semmes entered the U.S. Navy as a midshipman in 1826. Believe it or not, the same year that Thomas Jefferson and John Adams both died on the 4th of July. On the other hand, by the time 1841 rolls around, Mr. Semmes moves his family to Alabama. And it's while down south that his personal allegiances become deeply rooted. Abraham Lincoln's election victory in 1860 made him all the more skeptical about reuniting North and South. He officially resigned his naval commander post with the U.S. Navy on February 15, 1861. And remember, folks, Abraham Lincoln's not even president yet still. It won't be until uh, 1933 when uh, Congress changes um, when a president gets sworn in. FDR would become the first uh, president to be sworn in. I believe, in uh, January of, of 1933. In other words, he would be the first president sworn in in the month of January versus uh, what it used to be in March. So, um, Mr. Semmes officially resigns his naval commander post, as I said earlier, with the U.S. Navy on February 15th of 1861, as well as his position on the Lighthouse Board Early on in April of 1861, he becomes the head of the Confederate Lighthouse Bureau. So, you know, here we have the um, United States Lighthouse Board. While that's still in existence, however, for the South and the southern states whom secede from the Union, it the Lighthouse it's there is a Lighthouse Board, but how about it being the Confederate Lighthouse Bureau? Now, you know, many of us are more than likely to assume or led to believe that the first shots of the Civil War were fired in Manassas in April of 1861 at the first Battle of Bull Run. While that was one of the first major battles, we should keep in mind that there was another battle that um, actually marked the start of the true start of the Civil War itself. Did America's Civil War see its first shots fired by water, land, or combination of both water and land? Well, America's Civil War saw its first shots fired upon at Fort Sumter, South Carolina, and the fort itself was encompassed by both land and water, so there you have it, folks. The first battle was a combination of both uh, water and land. And it took place between April 12th to the 13th of 1861. While the Battle of Fort Sumter yielded no casualties on either side, Confederate forces emerged victoriously after a 34-hour siege. So what it really was, folks, is that this battle was um, trying to uh, keep um, the uh, fort in the hands of of uh, Confederate forces and no, have it no longer be in the possession of the federal government, or I should say the Union Army. Now, after the Fort Sumter battle commenced, Raphael Semmes was given command of CSS, or what we call a Confederate state ship known as the Sumter. Over time, Semmes became successful to where he captured or burned more than 86 Union vessels. So basically, he was the hero to the South, whereas in the North, he would have been seen as a villain or an enemy.
Now, once Abraham Lincoln has become president and he has seen uh, what uh, occurred in the aftermath of Fort Sumter, what do you think he would go about instituting that would prevent uh, further uh, problems along uh, the coasts, most notably in the southern coasts? He's going to institute what is called a blockade. What does a blockade refer to? You know, a blockade itself can mean multiple things, but in a time of war, it usually means an act or a measure to seal off a place in order to prevent goods, including people, from entering or leaving. So basically, a blockade is a means of um, sealing off um, any... Um, any outsider's ability to enter or leave a harbor with the efforts of either aiding or, um, or even abetting in terms of helping the enemy. So in the aftermath of the Fort Sumter uh, battle, President Lincoln issued multiple blockades along the southern coast, and these blockades uh, stretched um, as far north as the... Um, as the eastern shore of Virginia, because Virginia is considered a southern state at this time. I still think of it as a mid-Atlantic state, but in the Civil War, you know, there's no middle of the road. You either are a northern state or a southern state. So the blockade goes as far north as um, Virginia, down as uh, far south as the uh, Gulf Coast into Texas. And from what Eric Dolan has mentioned, that that's about a 3,500-mile uh, coast range. It's a lot of square miles to cover as well, but President Lincoln issues multiple blockades along the southern coast. The blockades are meant to impose shipping restrictions on key southern ports. Okay, when I think of key southern ports, how about Charleston, South Carolina? How about Savannah, Georgia? How about uh, Wilmington, North Carolina? What about um, Mobile, Alabama? New Orleans, Louisiana? Just to name a handful, but those are the five that would come to my mind in terms of southern ports. We could also include uh, Galveston, Texas, just on the outskirts of uh, Houston. So shipping restrictions on key southern ports like the ones I mentioned was vital to uh, not just for President Lincoln, but for the Union Army because it kept um, the South from importing materials. And remember, folks, imports are the goods that come in. So what kind of materials in, in the form of an import or imports are the South depending on at this time? How about um, items such as arms? Okay, think about like um, guns or uh, rifles, muskets. How about iron, machinery, medicine to food? After all, None of these uh, imports are going to stay in one area. They have to be dispersed to other um, areas where fighting is going to uh, take place between north and south. And the blockade alone isn't confined to just uh, imports coming in. How about um, exports? That is the goods leaving um, southern uh, cities. Exported goods like turpentine, tobacco, and most importantly of all, the number one com exported commodity, cotton. So by issuing a blockade, President Lincoln is hoping that it will bring the South to its knees and perhaps make them realize, well, you know what? This idea of secession perhaps wasn't such a, a, a smart thing to do because now our economy is going to suffer. But you know what? All that's wishful thinking. The South is on a mission. It doesn't like the fact that the North is trying to disrupt their way of life. And I, you know, and I could say this, I mean, for, I could say this for other reasons, but the bottom, but I don't want to lose focus of what I'm discussing on, but the bottom line is, is that uh, for the South, they're trying to preserve their way of livelihood, being that of slavery and an agrarian-based economy, whereas the North wants the South to have the same kind of um, economic lifestyle as they do. Mercantile, manufacturing. Think about it, because, you know, mercantile, manufacturing, 
that's a, a fast industrialized economy where goods are being produced at a faster uh, rate and uh, more people are living there. And by more people living there, they can reap the um, benefits of, of an economy that caters to mass populations. On the other hand, while President Lincoln was issuing blockades of his own, or let alone President Lincoln and his staff were issuing blockades, did the South return the fire? Absolutely. The South issued its own blockade by extinguishing its lighthouses, which included removing all materials and Fresnel lenses. This prevented the enemy, being the Union, from getting their hands on them. So basically, to put it in a nutshell, if you're a Union Civil War sh boat, or ship for that matter, and you're navigating, say, the harbor of, um, of Charleston, South Carolina, and all of a sudden the lights have been lit out, or the lights have gone out of sight, you're, um, you have no idea what you could be running into. In other words, your, sh your ship could run aground and hit a shoal from the bottom to where your ship would flatten out and your cargo and other uh, vital um, necessities to uh, supply uh, the men on the ship would be in peril, or I should say in danger. So basically, both North and South have come up with some uh, very strategical, unique strategical blockades in the hopes that, um, that maybe in the long run, both sides could sit down and then, you know, rethink things before resorting to a four-year war that um, sadly cost the lives of uh, 600,000 people. If you think about it, folks, 600,000 people lost their lives in the United States Civil War. That's far more than the number of people who lost their lives fighting in Vietnam. Close to 60,000 men and women lost their lives in Vietnam. That is American troops and uh, medical staff. But it doesn't come anywhere close to 600,000, not just soldiers, but um, civilians losing their lives as well. What southern lighthouse, per its location, was considered to be the most treacherous? How about the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse? Roughly 40 Union ships ran aground as a result of not having deep water to navigate. Well, there was deep water. The problem was that the ships weren't in the vicinity to uh, safely navigate the waters. In other words, they got too close to uh, shore and didn't realize that where they were uh, navigating their, their ships into, that what lied below was closer than they had originally anticipated. The Cape Hatteras Lighthouse became officially darkened in April of 1861. The Cape also became more of a hazard to northern commercial vessels where many of them ran aground as a result of the lighthouse, or as a result of the lighthouse's light being officially darkened. However, a year later, in mid-March of 1862, the Hatteras Lighthouse did get relit, and it was within that period of time that the Union Army, or let alone Union forces, did take control of Cape Hatteras. However, other southern lighthouses didn't fare so well. I'll give you two good examples, uh, being in South Carolina. The Cape Romaine Tower had its iron railing at the top broken, including its Fresnel lenses. Not just its Fresnel lenses being broken, but how about com being completely destroyed? Then you have the Charleston Lighthouse on Morris Island. It was destroyed not by um, outsiders being Union forces, but it was destroyed by the Confederate forces. Why would Confederate forces destroy one of their own lighthouses? when in fact they probably should have uh, kept that lighthouse, for example, as a means of uh, gathering um, intelligence from uh, far-range distance. Well, sadly, many of these um, men resorted to blowing up the uh, Charleston lighthouse because they were afraid of what the Union Army would do. Not just 
seize the lighthouse, but be in control of the entire island. So think about it. It's one thing to uh, have the enemy take control of a, a structure like the lighthouse, but if they take control of the whole island, that means they are in control of the island's inhabitants. They are in, they are in control of everything else that um, that the island itself stands for or represents. Well, here's my next question for you all. What were lighthouses best used for during the Civil War? Lookout stations, which provided broader views of the terrain. Terrain meaning landscape, not only nearby, but from a, but from a, a visible distance. And this was uh, very true, not just uh, for southern lighthouses on the east coast, but for southern lighthouses along the Gulf Coast, most notably Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, and Texas. Now, you know, the Civil War goes from 1861 to 1865. And more often than not, you know, we, when we think of casualties, we think of those men who lost their lives, not just from dying on the battlefield, but from disease. We do know that for every two, uh, for every one soldier that was uh, shot on the battlefield, two or three other soldiers who died died from means of uh, disease as a result of their uh, wounds on the battlefield. Not to get off subject, but uh, what my wife and I have always been told when visiting Colonial Williamsburg was that you were much safer on a battlefield as long as you didn't get shot versus being in a hospital dying. Why? How so? Well, for one, if you're dying from disease as a result of your injury, you're, you're very well likely to spread the disease on to the uh, person who's tending to you or any other um, ill comrades around you. After all, folks, you know, we have to keep in mind that the hospitals that were used not only in the American Revolution but also in the Civil War, not everyone had their own private room. After all, men were uh, cramped next to one another in very close quarters where um, the air quality was probably terrible. Um, just conditions alone were deplorable. Of course, people probably didn't know any better back then, but when I watch these documentaries and see for myself the struggles that the men were going through whom were badly wounded, especially in the Civil War, no anesthetics, no um, medicines that could help relieve the pain if they did survive, they were still forced to have a part of their leg amputated, a foot, an, a, an arm. I mean, look, I'm not trying to gross you, gross you all out, but th these were the uh, scary realities of what warfare alone brought to people. And people's lives weren't the same, not just from an emotional standpoint, but from uh, physical wounds as well. So as the Civil War comes to an end, Let's look. Let's think about how the lighthouses in these four years have been uh, impacted, most notably on the Confederate side. How many lighthouses had Confederate forces darkened, damaged, or destroyed altogether? I'll give you all a number. The number range is between 100 and 175. How many Confederate lighthouses had confederate forces um, darkened damaged or destroyed the answer is 164 so if you think about it, in a four-year span folks uh, 164 into four that could mean on average about maybe 41 lighthouses or more a year that had, had either been damaged destroyed or darkened now you know, it's bad enough that uh, lighthouses have been darkened, damaged, or destroyed. I found this to be very uh, sad, but I also felt it, need, it needs to be shared. You know, lighthouses weren't immune from, um, from the uh, carnage and um, destruction that war alone can um, bring, not just so much to the people of a particular town or um, 
community, but all over, but especially where the fighting itself is so uh, prevalent, or let alone hostilities are so strong. A man by the name of Thomas Harrison, whom uh, served on the side of the Union, he was a lighthouse keeper. He um, was the lighthouse keeper of West Rigolette's Lighthouse near the eastern end of Louisiana's Lake Pontchartrain. And Lake Pontchartrain is not too far from uh, New Orleans. Sadly, Thomas Harrison was shot on his way to work by a, um, what I would say was a deranged lunatic, perhaps the man who shot him, more likely than not. Of course, they don't really know who killed him, but it is fair to say that the man who shot him was a Confederate um, sympathizer, and he shot Mr. Harrison just as he was a few steps from the West Rigolette's lighthouse. The reason why Mr. Harrison's death is um, worth pointing out is because he was the only known lighthouse keeper to have died on duty during the Civil War. You know, I think it's a, it's a miracle that many other people, being that of lighthouse keepers, did not lose their lives, all in the, in the name of just performing their duty. But sad to say that one man sadly did lose his life. And he shouldn't be forgotten. After all, it just goes to show you that um, not everyone who died in the Civil War deserved to die an inhumane way. What's significant about April 9th of 1865? Well, it turns out on this date, or let alone that date, I should say, on April 9th of 1865, the Civil War ended with Robert E. Lee's surrender to Ulysses S. Grant at the Appomattox Courthouse in Appomattox, Virginia. I've been to the Appomattox Courthouse before, but it's been many years. And in case any of you all are wondering where Appomattox is located, it's uh, west of um, Richmond, Virginia. But it's just on the outskirts of uh, Lynchburg, Virginia, uh, where my father grew up. So if you live, say, in um, Midlothian, Virginia, the best way to uh, get to Lynchburg, well, there are a couple ways you can go. You could go uh, Interstate 64 and go 29 South. That is U.S. 29 South. Or you can go um, U.S. Uh, 360 and then um, connect to um, 460 uh, West, which would take you into, um, uh, as we know, Appomattox, and then to Lynchburg, and of course 460 goes all the way to uh, Bedford, which uh, became famous for um, D-Day in World War II because Bedford uh, produced um, more um, fallen comrades of any small town in in the United States. So that there's a little geography right there for you folks in terms of where Appomattox, Virginia is located. While the surrender, while Robert E. Lee's surrender to Ulysses S. Grant was uh, a celebratory matter after the, the official surrender had taken place, because none of that celebratory stuff was going on while um, surrender, um, while the negotiation of the surrender took place, tragedy sadly struck less than a week later when President Abraham Lincoln was assassinated while attending a play at Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. by a man um, named John Wilkes Booth, who not only was a Southern sympathizer, but an actor. You know, th this is still a very fragile time, folks. Just because the war ended, it doesn't mean everybody has gone back to uh, living their lives normal. Um, people's... Um, states of mind are very fragile, regardless of whether you live up north or south. I mean, yes, the north is happy the war has ended, but at the same time, we have to ask ourselves at what expense, not just from a northern perspective, but how about from a nationwide perspective? Because it's, you know, it's bad enough that the president has been assassinated, 
but the nation itself is nowhere close to healing its wounds from a war that bitterly divided people everywhere regardless of status. Yes, the 13th Amendment abolished slavery, but then you've got another problem. Not everyone is going to be welcoming those who've been um, freed. That's a whole other topic right there, but just keep that in mind. Our nation is going to um, be um, undergoing, for the next 12 years, re the era of Reconstruction. That is, rebuilding the South, but also admitting Southern states back into the Union. So by the time Robert E. Lee has surrendered, many Southern lighthouses were already relit, which is a very good thing. But the Lighthouse Board still had work to achieve, ranging from damage assessments to necessary repairs, along with questioning former keepers whom had information on missing lighthouse materials during the war. And they did achieve their objectives. As a matter of fact, I would say that the Lighthouse Board has survived a very dark chapter in our nation's history given that it's a federal government um, board. And despite the recovery efforts resulting in large numbers of damaged lenses from southern states, the repair shop at the Staten Island New York Depot, which was the main depot for all supplies, and I had mentioned that from the previous podcast, but I do believe it's probably fair to say that well after the Civil War, most notably after Reconstruction, that uh, each district will have its own supply station centers. But it's gotten so overwhelming that people, or I should say employees at the depot, are lacking the necessary means to be able to fix many of these um, lenses. In other words, they don't have the resources or equipment the majority of the damaged lenses were sent to France for repairing. I think that's a smart place to send them. After all, Augustin Jean Fresnel um, was the inventor of the Fresnel lens. Frenchman. The French are the ones that should take the credit for um, for starting this, uh, for devising this new light um, structure. So why not let them have the opportunity to help us out? By the end of 1866, the Lighthouse Board rebuilt or had repaired 94 Southern Lighthouses. Even that is an accomplishment unto itself. And here we are one year, one full year into uh, the Reconstruction Era. However, it wouldn't be until the early 1870s when a majority of them got relit. Whereas those that didn't survive were also considered permanent war casualties. Like people themselves, structures, too, are impacted by war itself. So it's not just the people who have lost their lives during this war. It's the lighthouses that, um, that didn't survive and were no longer deemed salvageable to where they could uh, be repaired and, and have um, a presence that would last longer than 10 years. Now, uh, let me ask you all this question. As gruesome as the Civil War was, in terms of just knowing how many people's lives were lost from soldiers, from wounded soldiers, to soldiers who died on the battlefield, to innocent uh, civilians, did the war itself have a negative impact on the Lighthouse Board's ability to function? Uh, the answer to that is um, no. Before and after the war's end, the Lighthouse Board worked diligently to ensure lighthouses not impacted by the war were properly tended to, most notably uh, northern states' lighthouses like you know, Massachusetts, uh, New Jersey, uh, Maine, New York State, uh, Pencil uh, Northwest Pennsylvania, Michigan, Ohio, uh, Illinois, Wisconsin. Um, just to name a fair number of lighthouses, but 
those lighthouses were not impacted by the war and they uh, were still able to be properly tended to, but they also had luck in overseeing construction of new ones. So after all, there still is what we call a beacon of hope. After all, even during the darkest of hours, even in this darkest hour or darkest uh, time in American history, there was a good segment of our nation's lighthouses that still shined brightly as brilliant beacons. Before and during the Civil War, uh, what kind of oil had been used to keep America's beacons shining? The answer is sperm oil. This, um, this type of oil is a waxy liquid substance that is found in sperm whales, and it's a clear yellowish liquid and it has had an odorless flame to it. Ironically, only a small percentage resulted of this oil resulted in meeting the needs of our lighthouses. The majority of its demand went to lighting America's homes, businesses, city streets. But why is, why is it essential to discuss um, sperm oil here? It seems to be doing fine. I mean, at least I thought it seemed to be doing fine with uh, lighting America's homes, businesses, and city streets, and lighting our lighthouses, even though the lighthouses um, only constituted a small percentage of, um, of that kind of oil's um, needs. The problem is the following. This is part A of the problem. You know, there's an old saying, everything's relevant to its time. Well, in 18, between 1840 and 1841, a good 20 years before the Civil War broke out, does anybody want to take a guess at what the cost of sperm oil was per gallon? The number is the following. Between 50 cents, the figure, I'll give you a figure range, between 50 and 75 cents, but could anybody tell me what they think is that is the exact number on average. How about 55 cents a gallon between 1840 to 1841? But let's move forward 15 years later by 1855. Five years before Abraham Lincoln is elected president and six years before the, before the Civil War itself officially breaks out. The price of sperm oil has shot up dramatically to $2.25 a gallon. You know, this almost sounds like uh, the time uh, back in the early 70s when they, when the United States experienced a, um, the first of many uh, gas um, or let alone oil crisis um, matters. My father told me uh, when he graduated from college in 1970, the cost of gas was 29 cents a gallon. And as he told me, every, that was very, everything is relevant to its time. But three years later, in 1973, a year after he and my mom were first married, the price of gas went from 29 cents a gallon to 66 cents. Now, you know, yes, that's under a dollar, but a 37 cent increase? Yeah, that's a huge deal. My dad, I remember my dad vividly telling me how... Uh, the way it, the, the crisis was um, going at that time in 73 was that if your license plate had even numbers, you went on certain days of the week. If it was odd numbers, you went different days. And he said the lines were, um, it was a very, um, it was a really scary uh, moment in time because he said that, you know, here, yes, it was a 37 cent increase, but as he once said, maybe we should have um, come up with some different um, methods of um, of not only just reducing our dependency, but different methods of um, of, of what we uh, were putting into our cars. In other words, yes, oil oil is here is probably going to be here to stay for a long time, but there probably should have been some other. Um, resources that should have been more heavily invested 
that might have uh, served as a wake-up call to say, hey, this, is, this crisis may not have been a one-time thing. Who's not to say that there could be other crises down the road? But, um, but back to what, what I was discussing a moment ago with this um, huge price increase from we going from 55 cents a gallon for sperm oil to now $2.25 in 1855. Many of you all are wondering now, why did the price increase alter so rapidly? It was due to greater demand for American whalers in traveling further around the world to obtain a commodity that was becoming more and more scarce as a result of a declining whale population. Okay, the whale population in this case being sperm whales. And to give you a little brief history, I might have mentioned this before, but I'm going to mention it to you all again. Definitely read, Nathan first off, read Nathaniel Philbrick's In the Heart of the Sea. It has to do with the tragedy of the whale ship, the Essex. For many years, uh, the people of Nantucket, their economy was heavily dependent upon the whaling industry. And, of course, you know, getting um, sperm oil was through, obviously, through the sperm whale for all sorts of um, lighting purposes. However, over time, uh, whalers in Nantucket vastly depleted the whale population's numbers. And it got so bad to the point where there was no whales left along the um, waters off of Nantucket's coast, including Martha's Vineyard and around what we would say Cape Cod. So they had to pursue another route, and that was to go further south, not just through the Atlantic Ocean, but go all the way south to uh, the tip to the southernmost part of Argentina, being the Cape of um, Good Hope, I want to say. Cape of Good Hope or Cape Horn, that is where they found a greater supply of whales, and most notably being the right whales. Why were they called the right whales? Because they were the right whales to kill for oil purposes. This is where folks supply and demand get out of whack, or they, the supply and demand as we know um, becomes so heavily fluctuated that there's no uh, middle ground to control people's um, needs. So in this case, the supply meant the whales. In other words, is there still going to be an abundance of whales to meet the demand? That is, the ever-increasing demand of sperm oil. Well, as I said earlier, the price increase was due to a greater demand for American whalers to have to travel further around the world just to obtain a commodity that was becoming more and more scarce. So, what did the Lighthouse Board do in the end to resolve this problem? They were smart enough to pursue a different route, and that meant switching oils, finding a new source of oil that wasn't as demanding and that could be produced domestically without having to go to different parts of the world to obtain it. How about kerosene? Kerosene became cheaper for illumination purposes and had cut down on overall costs of oil expenses in half. You know, folks, um, we've covered a lot of ground. We have seen, um, you know, we've seen, our lighthouses have seen the best of times and they've seen the worst of times. And yet somehow the Lighthouse Board has been the savior of an institution that has kept America's lighthouses afloat. They have even gone as far as putting partisan politics aside and helping southern states rebuild their lighthouses. And perhaps that's a first step towards welcoming the southern states back into the Union. There still is a lot of work left to go during this era of construction that will last until... Uh, 1877, when Ulysses S. Grant leaves uh, the presidency. But even in the midst of Reconstruction and after, 
lighthouses are still going to find a way to survive. They are going to be reinvented. They will still have the Fresnel lenses. But, uh, but when I'm on the air again with you all next, we're going to learn more about um, new technological advances in ensuring lighthouse safety and also advances that will um, ensure that uh, lightkeepers, that is, people who are keepers of the lighthouse, um, will be um, better prepared to deal with anything unexpected that could come their way. I mean, after all, we did learn from the previous podcast that the age range was between 18 and 50 for applicants to apply. But as uh, times change, lighthouse keepers are going to have more responsibilities. And then we're going to uh, talk about something called patronage. And we're also going to talk about... Um, we're going to talk about um, some other unique things as well, especially in what's known as from board to service. Well, thank you for your time as always. And once again, thanks to all of you, my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners, for listening. You all have um, done a thorough job of uh, listening to my podcasts and along with spreading the word to others whom want to learn more about what I'm sharing. So thank you again. And I look forward to being back on the air again soon. Um, and whenever you see a lighthouse, be reminded of just how vital a role it plays. Not just in the present, but for what it might have played in the past. But just remember, no matter how old our lighthouses are, they are brilliant beacons. They serve, they do more than just um, stand out as a um, an attraction. They have been... Um, they have saved countless ships from um, from um, from wrecking. They've saved countless lives. If it weren't for these brilliant beacons, gosh knows how many people's lives would have been lost over the last 300 years without them. Thank you again, and have a good rest of your evening, and uh, stay safe.